Broadcasting live from Global Headquarters and RP Enterprises in Greenwood, Missouri. Stand by on this frequency. After 22 years of entertaining FM radio listeners across the U.S., across the U.S., this man is the owner and executive producer of the award-winning Heartland Waterfowl on Sportsman's Channel, CEO and founder of Dumar Chemical Solutions, and the man behind the mic of Papa Ron Radio Voiceovers and Production. He's the man, the myth, the legend, a global icon, future Nobel Prize winner, and of course he paid me to say all this. Really? Literally. Welcome to the Papa Ron Podcast. Here's your host, Ronnie Phillips. Ronnie Phillips. We're back with episode 25 of the Papa Ron Podcast. And again, i got to apologize. Had to take a little bit of a break because the darn hunting season is getting in the way of the things that I like to do here at RP Global Headquarters. Uh, seriously, though, we apologize. Hope that you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Ours was wonderful, although mine was spent on the road as we were out in Kansas filming another episode of Heartland Waterfowl. And so the season is off to a great start, but that's not why you're tuning in today. You're tuning in to find out what is... What is next on the Papa Ron podcast? And I'm really excited about this week's guest because I've been watching him from afar and got a lot of respect for what he's done. In fact, he's quite a bit younger than I am, but uh, even in his short time here on this earth has been able to accomplish a lot of things. Welcome to episode 25 of the Papa Ron podcast, Stephen McBee. How are you, pal? I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me in the studio. This is uh, something I've been looking forward to, especially since we started talking about, you know, what this entire podcast is about. It's awesome. Thank you. Um, I saw that when you uh, came in through the front door of RP Enterprises Global Headquarters, you came through the toy division first, right? <laughs> and so I'm sorry that uh, those those uh, the people who work in the toy department, they're busy trying out new toys. And uh, actually, I'm, ta- I'm joking. I'm talking about my kids who are up there playing. Because <laughs> when you walk in the front room of my house, it looks like romper room. Anyway, I digress. Jillian, unfortunately, couldn't be here tonight. She texted me and said that she was trying to rally throughout the day, but is uh, a little bit under the weather and wasn't going to be able to make it. So, But thank you for being here. I know it's a little bit of a trip because you're from northern Missouri, right? Yeah, I'm from a small town called Gallatin. It's not even a map dot. I need to make a, make this comment, too, because I would be remiss if I didn't mention a mutual friend in Chuck Weldon. Mm-hmm. Chuck has been a dear friend of mine for probably since I moved to Kansas City in 2003, I believe. Uh, he was doing part-time at KFKF, and I was doing nights over at Q104, and um, I think he was filling in doing nights or something. Anyway, we crossed paths, got to know each other, and been friends ever since, and then he helped me with getting on there up in uh, KMZU in Carrollton, where I do the night show now, recorded from uh, RP Global Headquarters. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Chuck was who was able to bring us together, right? Mm-hmm. So I reached out to Chuck because I'd been following you on social media and seeing everything that you had been doing. And I was like, you know what? He might be someone that would be good to have on the show. And so I texted him and said, you know, Stephen McBee, right? And he's like, well, yeah. <laughs> like duh Ronnie and I said okay well I you know would you mind reaching out to him I think I'd like to have him on the podcast and he was like yeah no problem and then you were quickly you know uh returned the call and 
and uh, was willing to jump in. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, really, no, really I'm happy it. to be here. And, uh, you know, Chuck is a, a guy that lives right down the road from his farms, literally right next door to our farms. He's a lot better farmer than us. He's, he's probably <laughs> the best farmer in the county. I, I've told him that over and over. I'm, is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You drive by his fields and, and you drive by ours. And what's uh, why is that? He just knows what he's doing. He's, he's been at it. it for a while and he is uh, he's got it down to a science. He's got a horseshoe up his rear is what you're telling me, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> now, uh, that, that farming, though, that he does is kind of keeping him from getting out there and shooting the big deer that he used to shoot, though. And you guys have taken some massive deer on your, on your property this year. What, like three that I've seen? Or is there four that have been pushing 200? Yeah, so we've got four that we've killed that are over 180 inches um, and then several in the 160 to 170 inch range that were killed this year. Funny story, actually. So, Chuck has been farming. He hasn't been hunting. And he called me one day. It was actually about this podcast. And I was asking him, I was like, do you have any good deer on trail camera? And he's like, man, I don't have anything. And Cole's farm and Chuck's farm literally border each other. I'm like, are you sure you don't have like a a really massive deer with a lot of points, like mid one nineties. And he's like, no, I haven't gotten him this year. And I'm like, he's about a hundred yards from you. The, the border of our, our farms. That's really weird. He hasn't crossed over. We get yeah. off the call and 10 minutes later, he sends me a picture of the deer. And he's like, <laughs> it just showed up. He's like, I can't believe this. I better get in a deer stand. Oh my God. <laughs> he's still chasing that deer. Really? So, oh yeah. And, but is it sharing both properties? Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it's been split in time between my brother Cole's farm and Chuck's farm. And I guess it's uh, uh TBD who ends up getting him on the ground. They don't get that big being stupid. No, they do not. So no, they do. Well, not. we'll get more into the outdoors and, 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 um, a lot of different things. Of course, everyone probably, or not everyone, but many who are listening to this will probably want to know all the goof, goofy stuff in the, in the, in the stuff that took place with Joe millionaire. <laughs> so we'll get into that as well. Um, and then I also want to talk about entrepreneurship because there's a lot of things that you've got going on, uh, in and around the, the Metro that is pretty impressive. And so I guess the best thing to start though, is where you're from. I always like to do that to kind of break the ice for people to kind of get an understanding of who you are and how you got to where you are today. Uh, you know, you went to Fort Osage high school. Mm-hmm. Um, where did the passion for, uh, was it the family business? Cause I know your dad has done very well, uh, as a self-employed, uh, person. So where did this all kind of get started? Yeah. So I went to Fort Osage, grew up in independence, uh, grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, not only my dad, um, my grandpa and my mom's side of the family was extremely, um, success, successful as an entrepreneur. And so I kind of had that in my blood ever since I was, I was born and raised, you know, I had my dad in one ear and my grandpa in the other telling me, you know, you can either uh, build your own dreams or work to build someone else's. And yep. so that's just how my entire life has been built. I honestly never envisioned, I can't imagine working for anyone. It's just how I was born and raised. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just born with that passion just because that's what I grew up with. So after high school, what happens next? So I uh, was a pretty good football player, was going to go down to Columbia, Missouri and play, and uh, was invited to play in an all-star game. Uh, and I'd never been injured, so you know where this is going. So mm. never in my entire career had I ever had a major injury, and I didn't really want to do this all-star game because it was happening in late June, and I was supposed to go down to Columbia in July. And the coaches down at Mizzou had told me, you know, probably should not do this game. And if it wasn't for my buddies that were playing in it, were selected in it, we had a pretty good high school career. And so they, a couple of them were selected for it. And my head coach was actually the head coach, of the all-star team. First play of the game, I'm out there and uh, blow out my knee. Um, 
And so that was uh, really the the first major smack that I had in life. Uh, I've had a lot since then, but that was the first one. And so that one that one shut me down pretty good. You know, I was summer leading into college, and I was laying in bed in a straight leg brace after having surgery. Mm-hmm. And so that one ACL really, or everything the ACL meniscus. Okay. Um, yep. Yep. So it was uh, thankfully didn't tear the other tendons or ligaments, but ACL meniscus and. Uh, you know, that one, that one knocked me back. I was flying pretty high, uh, whenever that happened. And all of a sudden my life kind of got flipped upside down, ended up not wanting to go down to Mizzou. I was done with football. I was like, I will never do anything that puts me in a position to where I am decommissioned and laying in bed all day, every day. Cause that was not good for me mentally. Right. So what was the plan before the injury? The, I so, mean, you said to go to Missouri, was that you were recruited by Pinkle then? Yeah. So that would have been, uh, David Yost with the off, offensive coordinator there. Yep. Uh, and I was a quarterback, but I was not going to go play quarterback. I was more of an athlete. So it was probably going to be wide receiver or safety, um, okay. is what they were looking at for me. I wasn't, yeah. I didn't have the, the great mechanics that a quarterback has. And so that's what I was going down there to play. And so football was really my identity throughout high school and, and really growing up. And so to get that uh, kind of groundbreaking moment where, you know, my entire life was shaken up in a literally one play, the first play of the game, that was a uh, major ordeal for me. I ended up going to William Jewell that fall uh, and then transferred to UCM and got my undergrad and my MBA from UCM. Okay, but back up just a little bit. So you blow out your knee. Were you getting? Were they going to give you a scholarship? Yeah. So that's what we were looking at. It was going to be preferred walk on first year. By the time they recruited me, I was a late recruit, and by the time I was going to go into my second year, they had scholarship waiting for me. So it was preferred until walk-on. the injury. Yeah, correct. And then they took it off the table. Yeah, after correct. That. Correct. So did they give you any? Or let, let me ask this then. Was there any possibility of playing football again aside from the mental? part that you just discussed i'd have been a walk-on like after that it was anywhere no i mean i had other offers once i got injured to lower level schools yeah okay yeah so uh division one double a um and then pretty solid division two schools as well so if it wasn't d1 you weren't interested no i wasn't i wasn't it just wasn't worth i knew what was going to go into it like your life is that sport for Mm -hmm. four years straight and i had other aspirations as well so to me it was risk versus reward you know Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to go beat up my body and have to take four years away from everything if it wasn't for a you know going out in a division one stadium well you say that now with very convicted like you know that you had other aspirations but that decision couldn't have come easy because as you mentioned earlier in this conversation it was your identity so how did you navigate through to to come to that decision it was really you know and I, I remember it pretty vividly it was Fourth of July, so I had surgery June 28th, and the Fourth of July, uh, I was sitting in bed looking out the window, and there was a party that my parents were throwing. A lot of my buddies came over. Um, we had a lot of mutual friends between my brothers and I, and they were all all outside having you know fun with fireworks. And I was literally laying in bed, like with my knee propped up on a pillow, and I couldn't move. And I'm just looking out the window. And I'm like this is awful. Like, this is horrible. And, and I was in a, like, when I say I was depressed, I mean, I laid in bed the entire summer and that was supposed to be like, you know, the going away to college summer. So all of my buddies were going on these trips, you know? And so laying in bed every single day, uh, really, really affected me. And so even though I loved football and my identity was football at the time, I realized for my own mental health, I could never be in a position to where an injury like that would keep me decommissioned. 
Did you lean on any others, like any other people in your circle or family or friends to yeah, come to absolutely. that conclusion? Absolutely. So I had my mom there taking care of me. And then I had a girlfriend at the time. Uh, we dated for a while, actually dated for seven years. And I think we were four or five years into dating at that time. And between her and my mom, thank God I had them because they stayed by my side the entire time. And I was a miserable person at that time. Like I was depressed, upset, angry, confused, like mm -hmm. every emotion mixed into one. And I just lay there all day and complain and, you know, ask why me. And, uh, it was a really, really tough time without those two. I don't think I could have gotten through it. So you, where did you say you went? You went to, uh, you went to William Jewell. William for the, Jewell. Yeah. For the first <laughs> year and then transferred to UCM. Okay. Yep. Why did you transfer? Uh, honestly, because I was still a little lost at the time. So I went to William Jewell just you know, on a whim, just because it was close by and I was on crutches, which is about the worst spot to ever go to a spot <laughs> when you're on crutches because it sits at the top of a hill, okay. all the parking's down below. But uh, I just went there because it was close and I wanted to still live at home while I was healing up and going to physical therapy mm -hmm. and then transferred to UCM to try and live out the college, college life. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. So that was, that was the original plan. But then, um, I moved up to the farm, uh, the semester that I started going to UCM. And so I literally uh, would commute from Gallatin, Missouri to my college class. I spent more time on the road than I did in class. Really? And I never spent one single night in Warrensburg. Not one. And how many years? Uh, ended up being four and a half. Yeah. You drove from Gallatin to Warrensburg every day. Yep. For like one class. So I'd spend an hour and a half driving each way and then only like 45 to 50 minutes in class. Did you ever think? While you were doing that, like, this is dumb. What am I doing? Yeah, the entire time. <laughs> the entire time, really. Um, you know, the farming operation was really just starting to take off, uh, as well as some of our other business ventures. And I was working full-time and then still going to school. And so, really, I had poured my heart and soul into business. So, that was kind of shaping my new identity after the sports thing. Mm -hmm. And so, that was kind of where my focus was. And so, um, you know, I wasn't too concerned at that time where I was, I was really diving into the business. And I was like, I think I can take this on. I think this can become my new identity. So I didn't give a care in the world about going down to Warrensburg to party or live out the college life. Yeah. So there had to have been something business wise, <clears throat> sorry, business wise that kind of had to have inspired you to put all of the shit from the past behind you. I'm guessing um, I guess where I'm going with this is, is that once you've decided that you're going to go to William Jewell and you start kind of just getting to the everyday motion of going to school, you're probably just going through the motions, mm. right? You're probably, are you at that? I mean, how quickly is it after this injury and you going to college, does the whole entrepreneur bug start to really creep in? I would say, so the injury happened in late June it really wasn't until that next February that I started really feeling like my life was getting the back next on track. February. So yeah. just a few months later. Yeah. So I it, mean, it happened in June. You said right. Yeah. So it was about eight months later. Okay. Um, and it all that was quicker than I thought. It all started with fitness. Like, you know, I started working out. I obviously I lifted weights during football, but I didn't really care about nutrition or anything. Like I was going to McDonald's and just eating out <laughs> with friends. You know, I didn't give a crap about it. Yeah. And then, uh, starting in February, I just started going to the gym and, uh, started kind of really reinventing myself and wanting to get more into the nutritional aspect, see how I could improve my life, my fitness, and then really started getting into, you know, some of these podcasts that have, 
they truly helped my life out. I mean, you think about the Andy Frisellas of the world, the Ed Milets. I mean, wow. I was just pouring. Like, I didn't listen to music then, and I still really don't listen to a whole lot of music. Whenever I'm in a truck driving around, I'm listening to self-improvement podcasts. Really? Like, nonstop. Non-stop. I love that. Yeah. So, who else you listen to? So, Papa Ron Radio Show, I know that. Of <laughs> course, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, so I love Ed Milet, uh, Ed Milet um, Andy Frisella, Alex Hormozzi. Uh, those three, definitely my top ones. Um, but really, I just am a lover of anything and everything self-improvement. I'm reading self-improvement books every morning. I'm trying to take, because I have a very, I'd say a very fragile um mentality. And so I don't want to do anything that can rock the boat. And and really the injury is what showed me how fragile that can be. Mm. And so if I I want to spend as much time getting my mind right, you know, feeling like uh, I'm preparing myself every single morning, getting the right, uh, you know, thoughts, ideas in my head before I go out and take on the world, because in the world of entrepreneurship, um, as you well know, you know, there's so many fires that you have to deal with, so many crises you have to deal with. If your mind's not in the right state whenever you uh, get hit with one of those, mm. it's a bad deal. Yeah, for sure. I'm still yeah. crawling out of that. Yeah. Um, I think, how old are you? I'm 28. Yeah, wow. just turned 28. Wow, wow. So you kind of learned at a very young age, you know, that you've got to be focused. You you really got to have tunnel vision. Yeah. In understanding the importance of being a product of your environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thankfully, um, was that always that way, even through high school, or did you, were you just the typical high school kid who partied after football games on Friday night? And then, I mean, what, what was what was? So I never partied. Like I didn't touch alcohol till I was twenty two years old. My okay. family was very very strict. Um, every single weekend, we were ate up with going up to the farm. So we'd finish football game, we'd watch film right after the game until about midnight or twelve thirty, and then my brother and I would take off to the farm and get up there about two a.m. And if it was hunting season, we'd be hunting first thing in the morning. If it was off season, we were either doing farm work, deer preparation work, you know, any type of work we could get our hands on. We were ate up with that. And so the hard work side of me has always been there. Um, But as far as the the self-improvement side and the mental state of health and really focusing on my mental health, that didn't come till after the injury. Okay. Wow. Um, very, very interesting. All right. So you get to UCM and then you've got one year there or do you, I can't remember how many years you spent at UCM. Four and a half at UCM. So got my undergrad and my MBA there. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. And then what did you, I guess we were, I, let me back up a little bit because I was talking about you had had this base, this trauma, I'll call it because your, your football was your identity. Mm-hmm. It was about eight months later that you really started getting back into the groove of things. Was there a business opportunity that presented itself or was there something that you were, your family was bringing you in on that you were going to get a piece of the family pie or the family business? What, what happened there? So it was really the farming entity that took off. So we'd always farmed, we farmed since 2005, you know, we were 2,500 acre farmer up until that time. And really when I immersed myself fully into the farming operation, um, you know, my dad and I had sat around and talked about what our goals for the operation was going to be. And we really felt like it was a time that we could expand the operation because it was about as were it's as bad as a market as it could be for farming during that time. That would have been 2015, 
Yeah, 20, uh, 2014. Okay. Yeah, 2014, 2015. And so the market was horrible for farming. Everyone was going under, and we're looking at it as an opportunity to capture market share if we got out there and really busted it. And so we talked about what could come of that, um, how we could grow to become one of the largest operations in the state of Missouri. And that became like my new North Star. And I was like, I'm going to chase that with everything I've got, shape my identity around that. And so like I didn't sleep i was like so focused on trying to build our farming operation to what i thought it could be uh and so that that whole uh idea of reshaping my identity around entrepreneurship and um you know the fitness side kind of mm-hmm. took place right around then were you uh so you're what 21 22 around that time when all of this is kind of taking place yeah i'd have been uh yeah 20 yeah. okay how how experienced of a farmer are you at that time not experienced at that's, all. That's uh, okay. So that's where I'm going with this. And yeah. your dad just is kind of dabbling with it because yeah, because his background's in construction, right? Correct. Yeah. So he, yeah, we we're first generation farmer. So we, yeah, you know, we were learning by trial and fire and mistakes and tripping all over ourselves. I mean, we couldn't have made more mistakes than we did in the early years. We still make mistakes today. I mean, farming is something that takes like a generation or two to really grasp and understand. And uh, like I said, we've only been doing it since 2005. So, yeah. When, but I mean, you just, to do it to the level of what you're wanting to do it though, you had to have had some sort of tutelage from somewhere. Were you taking any kind of farming classes through college or was there other people like was there the Chuck Weldons of the world that you were leaning on getting you know friendly advice from who were you seeking out to get kind of uh, guidance oh yeah I mean we were going to there's different ag classes that you can go to ag trainings and we were going to those nonstop. I mean we're ate up with the research side of things and not being scared to try new methods new techniques and literally just pouring over the internet trying to learn those things Mm -hmm. and then we had a guy that we're still really good friends with to this day named Derry Wright he's a large-scale farmer uh, around here Mm-hmm. And so he uh, really took us under his wing, taught us a lot about uh, large-scale farming. And so we took what he was doing here in the Independence up through Richmond area and mm-hmm. moved it up to our Gallatin area. Wow. And when you say we, who's we? My dad and I. Just you too. Yeah. So it, we were spearheading the operation. Obviously, we had operators in the field. But as far as, uh, you know, the, the partners that are making every single decision, it was my dad and I every single day. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so that has been the main focus. McBee Farms has been pretty much your identity from the beginning. I mean, I know you've dabbled in other things. We're going to get into that, but that's where it kind of all started. Yeah. That's where it all started. Wow. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's, uh, I had a question about, um, I'm trying to think where I was at with this. So what was, when was the time that you realized that like, Hey, you know, I, even though we buy all of this land we got all of this equipment and, and at that time, you know, there's an opportunity to be successful. When did you have your real first like reality moment? Like, Ooh, it's not a given every single year. Uh, the first year, the first year was tough, huh? Yeah. And every year since, I mean, farming kicks your butt every single year. Why did you want to do that? I don't know. Because if I look at it nowadays from just a, like a margin perspective or an industry perspective. It's about the worst possible industry you could get into. (laughs) But there's something so rewarding about farming. It's almost innately in every single person's blood. And it seems like, uh, you know, we have bankers come up to talk about our other businesses and whatnot. And all they want to do is travel around the farm and see the farm, see the cows. And, and, you know, it's just kind of got this cool um, 
you know, I don't know if it's uh, bred into the genetics of who we are, um, but it's just always been something that I've wanted to do. Okay. And, and so from the time I was growing up, again, we were, we were deer hunting, so we were planting food plots. We were taking care of the ground yep. to a much lesser scale. Sure. Uh, but we fell in love with that work, and so it's been in me since I was young. When do you become a helicopter pilot? So, funny story, actually. Um, this was all like a right around the same time that I was reinventing myself. and Which, again, is right after the injury, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, this was, you know, 20 to 22. And I was deathly afraid of commercial flights. I still don't like them, but I was deathly afraid. Like, I would be shaking. Old women sitting next to me would be like, honey, do I need to hold your hand? <laughs> like if we really? Hit, yeah, it was a bad deal. <laughs> and so, you know, listening to all these podcasts and I kept, hearing people, you know, talk about, well, you have to find your biggest fear and you got to run right into it and just face it. Wow. And so I was like, man, I'm so scared to fly. I'm like, it was horrible. I hated flying. And so I was like, what would be my biggest fear to face right now? And I was like, I want to become a pilot. And then not only that, I want to become a helicopter pilot because it's even tougher than a fixed wing pilot. And so found the nearest trainer and started doing it. It was actually in Excelsior Springs is where I started training for that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long did you do that? that I was, mean, you obviously started off, I would imagine doing the fixed wing stuff and then, then grab it. Or did you do, no, no, I was really, yeah, I was a helicopter pilot from the beginning. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know, like the first time I took control of, uh, the controls at, uh, in a helicopter, we were doing three sixties. Like <laughs> you, the, the first thing you do is you try to hover and you uh-huh. think it's like such a simple technique. And the minute, uh, your CFI hands you over the cyclic and collective, which is your controls, uh-huh. you literally just start doing three sixties. You have no control. You feel like you're going to die. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy feeling. And you do that for about 20 hours straight where you're like, I will never be a pilot. There's no way I will get this. Uh-huh. And then like hour 21, like you lift off off the ground and it's just like, stable it's just all muscle memory it's weird okay how many hours are minimum before you get do you do you have to get before you do i'm guessing it's like a fixed wing my dad is a flight instructor Mm -hmm. and i'm actually before covid was doing my getting for my private license so i know a little bit about this kind of stuff not anything about helicopter though so how many hours do you have to do minimum before you do a ride along to get your to or do they do it that same way as they do with the fix? They do, yeah. You have to do a check ride to officially yep. become a pilot. So minimum is 40 hours of flight time. Um, but most helicopter pilots are 60-ish. I yeah. think I was at like 63. Okay. Yep. And then do you do a solo or you do a cross-country? Or yeah, do you they- do a solo and a cross-country before you do your check ride. Um, okay. And so that first solo is a, a pretty crazy feeling. You know, you're up there in the air by yourself and uh, there's no one to save you but you. And it's mm. a very... It's a good feeling, though, because then you start to believe in yourself. And so that's something I didn't realize that would come from being a helicopter pilot is you get this inner self-confidence that, you know, you're properly trained for this. You can handle this. And even though, yeah, it's a little scary, you can keep pushing forward. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a really, really good feeling. And how long was your cross-country? My cross-country, I went over to Illinois, so it was about a three-and-a-half-hour flight. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And and I know nothing about helicopters, really, but uh, just for those who might be listening and, and, and do, what were you flying? So I'm in a Robinson uh, R44 uh, okay. Raven 2. So, okay. yeah, it's a four-man helicopter piston uh, engine. So That's really neat. Mm-hmm. And so you got that what year, your license? Uh, that would have been 20... 18 is when I got my license. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So you've been, and you utilize that 
license as it applies to your farming. Correct. Being able to kind of check out everything that's going on from the sky. Yep, correct. So we fly it around the farm, check on the crops, check on the cattle. Originally, we were going to spray with the helicopter. That was our uh, business purpose for buying the helicopter. Um, and then the spray rig that we wanted to buy was certified in New Zealand. It had to go through a bunch of government uh, certifications in the U.S. and to this day, it is still not certified in the U.S. So, <laughs> so it's just a toy. It's just yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. Do you get up? Do you use it quite a bit? Do you yeah. fly a lot? Yeah, I do. How often do you think you go up? I probably I mean, go up. even this time of year. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. It's just I've fun. seen the stuff you put up on Instagram. I mean, it, it, is the cab. The cab's, the cab's not always enclosed, right? Or Yeah, you can take the doors off. So oh, in the summer, okay. I take the doors off. Um, right now, I keep the doors on. But it's fun, like, flying down to downtown Kansas City, flying around the Plaza Lights right now. So yeah. I fly. You've done that? Oh, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I do it all the time. It's it's a blast. Dude, that is so cool. Yeah. That is really neat. Yeah. Um. All right. So let's do this. Let's take a little bit of a break here. And we come back, we're going to get into uh, some of the entrepreneur ventures that you have. And then I want to get into Joe Millionaire. So I'm trying to drag this thing out as long as I can, because I know people are wanting to hang on for the conversation of Joe Millionaire. But I want to get into some of the entrepreneur talk. It's coming up next with Stephen McBee on the Papa Ron Podcast. Attention. You're listening to the Papa Ron Podcast. Get involved with the show. Wow, really? Ask questions and leave comments or complaints. Woo! Nice. Call or text 816-558-6389. That's 816-558-6389. Now back to the show. Here again, your host. Yes. Great. Showtime. Ronnie Phillips. Thank you for tuning in to episode 25 of the Papa Ron Podcast. It can be found on pretty much all podcast platforms, video versions available on Spotify and on YouTube. So check that out. And if you would do me a favor, share this experience that you have for those, especially if you've been around for the last 25 episodes, I'd love for you to spread the word so that we can kind of continue to build this thing. The Papa Ron Podcast can be found on all of your favorite social media platforms, be it Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Back with Stephen McBee. All right, so uh, farming is the the first venture, really, when it comes into uh, getting your your fingers digging your fingers into the entrepreneurial spirit. When is the what what happens next? When's the next thing that you start adding to your portfolio? Yeah, so after farming, uh, my brother Jesse and I wanted to get into some rental properties. Uh, so we started looking through what type of government loans we could get. Um, you know, being first-time investment buyers. Uh, and so we built up a rental portfolio. Uh, we've got 13 units. It was just a smaller rental portfolio. Um, and so we did that uh, when I was 23 is whenever we started buying up some rentals. And at the time, we were still able to buy them at a good deal. It's a good thing we weren't buying them now. You could only, that 13 would be like one small house at this time in the market. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. You were at the right place at the right time, yeah, huh? Yeah, we were able to buy quite a few for, for really, really cheap and got them fixed up, and that was a good learning experience. We were doing all of the work 100% ourselves. Um, that's what, you know, a lot of people don't realize is we cut our teeth in the, the back-breaking work, the, the hard labor. Mm-hmm. And so that was, it was a good learning lesson. Uh, taught me a lot about scaling business and um, knowing that, I want to try to work smarter, not harder, because that is some tough stuff. Well, the other part of that, you were talking about, you know, when your first experience of entrepreneurship was farming and just the amount of time and labor that is involved with that 
for not much return mm-hmm. as far as, I mean, you got to got to ask yourself what's your time worth, right? Yes. You know, so it's not like you're not making money, but is it worth the time that you have invested is really what I'm coming down to. So where I was getting ready to go with this is that like, it's really cool that you're picking out these different ventures and kind of trying to scale and diversify your portfolio. But <clears throat> man, I would think that unless it was, were they high end uh, apartments that you guys were doing? No, oh, no. Oh no. So, and the only reason I know this is because the first house I ever bought, I ended up holding on to moving on to another property and trying to rent this out. And it was the biggest headache of my life. Mm-hmm. It was stressful. I was threatened to be killed. You know, I was trying to get him evicted, you know, and trying to kick him out. And you know, it was just, it was a nightmare. And then once I finally got into my house that I had fixed up, it was destroyed. destroyed. Yeah, like, what were you thinking? Yep. <laughs> I mean, was 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 the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, it was pretty rough, honestly, getting into it. Well, you listen to all these, po- again, I, I'm a podcast maniac, and so I was listening to all these podcasts, and everyone was saying real estate, real estate, real estate. So I was like, I'm going to become a, you know, a rental king here. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's tougher than it. than it sounds. It's not as easy as the podcast makes it sound. And right. so, yeah, Jesse and I were the one, we were doing maintenance calls at middle of the night. We were getting a call about a uh, backed up sewage unit. And mm. uh, yeah, I mean, we were, that was rough there for and a while. And it's just you guys. It's yeah. not like you have a management team that's no. taking care of all this for you. You are. No. Yeah, it was just us. And so our phones were blowing up. I mean, the worst horror stories come from those lower level rental units. I mean, it was rough. <laughs> yeah. But it was also good learning experience, 100%, right? Yeah. Are you still involved in that space? Yeah. I've still got the rental units. Okay. I've got actually uh, a pretty decent sized portfolio now up to about 25 units. Um, but it's all now I'm large enough to where I can hire out a management company. Yes. So thank right. God good. for that. Good, good. <laughs> now you don't have to deal with taking that phone call no, in the middle of the night. No, right? that's exactly right. Actually my number, I haven't changed my cell phone number in, I think since I first got a cell phone. And so every now and then I'll just get a random call yeah. and I don't answer any numbers I don't recognize, but sure. I'll, I'll listen to the voicemail. I'm like, yeah, this is one of the, the renters. <laughs> they still have my cell phone from way back in the day. <laughs> um, has it gotten better or is it because that you are working with the low income type? And I'm not trying to like speak disparagingly against yeah, those absolutely. who make a lower income. Um, it's just, unfortunately, that was the situation that I had was a low income family who was renting my house and sometimes low income families have a tough time paying the bill on the time, you know? Um, so I guess ultimately what I'm trying to go where I'm going with this is, is that are, do you see it in waves based on the economy that we have, you know, was it like now, because there's this times are getting a little bit tougher. Not that we're technically in a recession. Some will say that we are, some will say that we're not, you know, I don't know. I think that we are. Um, do you see that it's kind of ebbs and flows? So we've got some really good renters in there now that we've been, uh, they've been in there long-term. Um, you know, I think each of the units has had a renter in there for over two and a half years, Oh, good, which is pretty good, pretty good time. And so we, we've been pretty solid on collections. Uh, but early on it was rough because we were just trying to get people in there. We're like, we just mm-hmm. need income. Just throw whoever's in there. We'll yeah, trying to pay them. the note. You yes. know? And if, as long as their money's coming in from them, then you can yep. apply it to your note. Yeah. What did, what did you learn about the vetting process in, in putting people in there? Uh, there's a very, very good reason why you use third party, uh, companies to send in these rental applications and do background checks on the potential uh, renters because 
everything seems great and fine whenever they say, oh, you know, we'll just pay all cash. Um, you know, here's our, you know, they'll, they'll tell you what they've been making over the last couple months, and we throw them in there again just trying to get some income coming in. Everything was fine and dandy for the first three months, and then all of a sudden, yeah, they're behind on payments. And Same then, thing happened to me. Yeah, then you have to try the eviction process, which God only knows that takes months. Yes. Especially now, since COVID, it is like it's unbelievable they can live there for free for like two years yep it's wild (laughs) and then you still have to be making the bank payments like it's insane did you run into that where people weren't making their payments because the government was basically telling them they don't have to we did not on our side just because again we got some good renters in the door but my dad has a pretty good sized uh rental portfolio and he ran into it rough i mean it was it was a bad deal i mean yeah because they literally could just live there for free um Mm -hmm. and you know, the banks, they aren't letting you skip payments. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty insane. Well, thank goodness that you didn't have to run into that too bad. Yeah. Um, so then you get into the rental property business. What's next after that? So next would have been uh, 2020 started a um, meat stick and jerky brand. So focused around. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Apex Protein Snacks. Um, so it's like a health-oriented meat stick. Um, So if you go to your gas stations and you look at any of the jerky or meat sticks on the shelves, most of them have sugar levels that, you know, rival your Snickers bar or your Skittles. or They're horrible for you, and the meat that they use, it's like the leftovers of the leftovers of what's left after butchering these animals. And so I wanted to go into it uh, and create a product that was actually healthy for you. It was a portable high protein snack. And so that's what I started researching, came up with formulations that worked, that tasted pretty solid and were low to no sugars. And so I took that to the marketplace and it's done really, really well. How did you do that? I mean, that you just make it sound like it's so easy. Oh no, it's not. It's like, not that it's easy. Not. So people are listening to this. They're like, what? No, I'm Come not on. trying to glorify it or no, tell no, 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 no. Yeah. I don't think that you're glorifying it. I just, I want to dive a little bit more deeper into it. I yep. am an entrepreneur or at least mm-hmm. an aspiring one. Um, I have that spirit. And so I know that it just isn't that easy. Yep. You talked about doing some research. You did some taste testing. You were able to find someone who can work with you on the manufacturing side and the packaging. And then eh, it went to market, you know. So let's dive in a little deeper. How long from point from how long from it being an initial idea to it actually going to market did it take? So the first idea I had was in 2018 and we launched in November of 2020. So it was a two-year turnaround time. Okay. And for every problem that you solve, the minute you solve that problem, there's three more waiting behind the door. <laughs> I believe it. So, yeah, it's just like that's literally all entrepreneurship is. You just have to, like, brace your mind to the fact that it is a grind and it is a race of perseverance. Like, who can outlast the longest is who wins in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, it is and it's every single venture I've gone into now, even on the car wash side and, and trying to build out these car washes. It's like, okay, solve a problem. There's three more here. So once we solve those three, we're probably going to get a couple more. And right after we're about to quit, we'll solve that last problem. And then we might be able to get to the spot where we can actually start creating some revenue. Wow. Incredible. Um, so how do you go about coming up with this idea and I mean, you've obviously never developed anything, never a product base. And then of course, then I would imagine you're dealing with the um, FDA, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, USDA. Or, or USDA. I mean, yep. uh, yes, correct. Sorry. Um, so there's government and now involved. Mm-hmm. 
this is stuff that you know nothing about going into it, right? So you're nothing. really taking a crash course lesson on how all of this works. Um, yeah. How what does that look like? So I'm guessing then you are being that you know you're a farmer and you've got access to cattle, you've got access to deer meat, whatever. You're probably playing around with some of this on your own, doing your own um, formulations, I guess in, in your own house. Is that accurate? Or are you, nope. no, really? I'd never, you never made, I'd never made a meat stick in my life. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, I really, th- I'd see now you disappointed me because I, I thought for sure you would have done that. No, I've never made one in my life. I had no idea how to do it. So, so how did you, when you say you research, what were you researching? So I Googled, uh, butchering facilities or smokehouses around the U S and okay. I found a few different ones. I called up the smokehouse called Western smokehouse over in green top, Missouri, Northeast Missouri. They're a very, very large smokehouse. And somehow just calling out of the blue, I was able to work my way to the owner, which at the time I didn't think was a big deal. I was like, Oh, it's you know some guy in a little butcher shop, but apparently it's like this huge facility. So the fact that I was able to finagle my way to getting the owner on the phone and then I was just some stupid kid talking to him, and he was like, uh, I was like, hey, I want to make meat sticks. Like, can you do that for me? And then he's like, well, sure. Send me over, you know, your recipe. We can get a, uh, you know, a private label agreement going. Do you have your packaging in place? I was like, no, I just wanted to make meat sticks. Like, I figured you could just do that for me. <laughs> and he's like, no, that's not how this works. And I ended up having like a 45-minute conversation with him. That, had, is, that is really cool that that owner took the time out for you. It is. It is. Yeah. His name's Kevin Western, Western Smokehouse. They're huge. I think they just sold to private equity, but Kevin Western got me my start there. And that was really nice of him to take that time. Wow. So he got me in the direction of a, uh, I guess, meat chemist, meat formulator that has done all of these incredible flavor offerings for some of the biggest brands on the retail shelves today. Okay. And this guy's out of Rapid City, mm-hmm. South Dakota, which Rapid City is a hop, skip, and a jump to get to. It is not like a very big city at all. It's more of a town. Mm-hmm. And so I called him up and started talking to him a little bit, told him what I wanted to do with a more of a direct-to-consumer brand. And he was like, oh, this is awesome. He's like, you don't understand the difficulties in going retail and what you have to deal with whenever you're trying to go through a Costco, a Target, like a Whole Foods. These guys, you know, they require so much testing and information that is unneeded. It just kills your margins to the time that you have to move, you know, 5 million meat sticks to make a hundred grand. You know, it's just insane. And so he's like, I love the direct to consumer. You have control over your marketing. You have control over the entire product process. He's like, fly out to me and let's start messing with some samples. And so like the next week I flew out to Rapid City and met up with this guy. I was completely by myself and we were in his house just making samples left and right. Wow. So that's how that got started. How many how many different SKUs do you have? Uh, currently we have 15 different SKUs on the market and I've got another 22 flavors um, that are approved and finalized. I'm just waiting on packaging to come in. So this is something that you're still very involved with and is something that is still scaling, still growing. I built a manufacturing facility, so it's- Oh my God, what? Yeah. (laughs) Where's that at? So it's at my farm up in Gallatin. Okay. So yeah, I've got a building. Are you using your cattle for this? So we're using some of our cattle. Uh, Right now, I'm going through so much uh, meat sticks that I'm having to buy meat and bring it in too. So yeah, it's it's moving some serious product. We're making 25,000 meat sticks a day right now. Unreal. Yep. Congratulations, man. Thank that you. is huge. Thank you. How are you marketing it? All social media. How? Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> do you have, are you, um, 
how do I ask this? Uh, do you have a social ad budget then that you're making, yeah. that you're using to make sure that you're influencing those who could and should be your customers? Correct. So the enti- it's funny because it's it's weird how the hunting industry has helped me out so much in business and I never could have foreseen this, um, you know, on the front end. But now looking back, it's helped me out tremendously. So through the hunting network, we got in with several country music artists. They came up, hunted my farm. I let them kill, you know, some of our How gear. did that, well, let's back up. How did that happen? How did you get involved with having country artists come to your farm? How did you get involved in the hunting industry? So my brother and I, we grew up watching hunting television. We loved it. So we started yeah. going out there filming all of our hunts. We've done this since we were little. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got in with Jury Outdoors. Yep, um, okay. And so, That's right. I knew that. Yeah, got in with Jury. And then we actually had our own show on the Pursuit Channel. It was awful. Don't ever look it up. Called Point of Impact. Unfortunately, the videos, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Videos are still on YouTube. <laughs> They're awful. It was such a bad show. Uh, you should have gone to an HB film school. Yeah, we, we did. <laughs> did you really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I went back, but I didn't know Michael or uh, Sean from Adam when we went to him. So, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, back in the day. So, yeah, we were all over the I place. I was trying to crack a joke, and now that, that kind of worked against me. <laughs> <laughs> we were there right behind Bass Pro. We Yep. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. So that's uh So that's how you got into the industry. Then yep. you tried to start a show. Yep. Tried to start a show. That was an epic fail. Uh there's v- What failed about it? Uh the show was horrible. We didn't know how to pitch to sponsors, so we just went in with a pitch deck. I would go to the ATA show and I'd just walk around and request meetings. Yeah. I didn't know what to present to them. I didn't know like what metrics they're looking for. I'm like, "Hey, I've got a show, you know, why don't you be my title sponsor and give me $20,000? Like, it was just horrible. How was, like, I had no concept. You, and, and they're thinking to, like, you're the 15th person who's come up to me and said, hey, I got a show. I'm nobody. <laughs> like, nobody. I have no metrics to give them. I have absolutely, like, no information other than, like, here's an episode on an iPad. So who's who's field producing this? Are you guys doing the camera work? We're doing everything. Film? You're doing the post-production as well? Post-production as well. That's where you screwed up. It was awful. If you don't know what you're doing no. with that, then you should have hired that no. part out. And so I had to learn Crash Course. Like, my brother Jesse and I would be up until 3 a.m. editing these episodes. And, you know, the Pursuit Channel is definitely a lesser channel than, like, Sportsman or Outdoor. Yeah. But there's still, you know, you have to get these certain commercial breaks. You have to do the closed captioning. Like, I had, didn't know how to do any of this. Yes. So I'm sending it off to the Pursuit Channel, and they're sending it back to me. They're like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and so I was looking up on they YouTube. Didn't, they didn't require a pilot episode before you started Oh my god! This is Pursuit Channel, all right? This okay. is not like Sports. Center. I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. So, so anyway, you're getting uh, you're you're getting criticized then by the actual network. Yes. Yeah. When they're in desperate need of content and they now don't want your content. Yes. Yeah. So Did I you had, get any sponsors the first year? Uh, we had three sponsors. I think we had one product sponsor, and then I think we maybe had ten grand in sponsorship. Wow. Yeah. And then the rest of the money, I think that's the Pursuit Channel, we had to pay 40000 for the season. Sounds about right. Yep. And then uh, I made the rest of the money up from selling guided hunts that fall. Oh, man. <laughs> so then I was doing How, guided hunts. Were you doing that before, or were you just doing that to try to, co- op- to I was just doing that offset to try, the, yeah. the, the cost? Yeah, I was just trying to scrape up enough money to pay for the Pursuit Channel. <laughs> but you don't do guided hunts anymore. No, no, yeah, no yeah, I will yeah, never I gonna, do. Yeah. I literally, like... All at the same time, I was trying to farm. I was trying to do the rental properties, trying to do guided hunts. I didn't sleep at all. Like yeah. it was, 
I chose the worst, most labor-intensive work you could ever do. Okay, so get now. This is all now that you got that out of the way. We come back full circle. So that's what your experience was with the hunting industry, which mm-hmm. allowed you then somehow through that to meet country artists. Correct. So at the ATA show, oh, be, of course, you know yeah. whether it be through the Dre Outdoors connections or you know just seeing the country artists and walking around. I would sell them like I had the best farm in the entire nation. Like I knew what I was doing. I mean, it. like I would literally pitch this to them and be like, you got to come out and come to my farm and hunt. And then not only that, on Instagram, I was shooting my shot. I was sliding in so many DMs of these country artists just hoping one of them would take the bait. And actually wow. a surprising amount did. And so we like started. Like who? Dylan Scott, John Langston, Riley Green, Dustin Lynch. So they all come up and hunt my farms and we actually had pretty good hunts whenever they were up there and we showed them a good time and, uh, you know, they ended up becoming really good friends of ours. And so, you know, all those guys are now helping me network apex protein snacks where I would normally be paying them a substantial amount of money. They're just doing it for free just because we're buddies. Wow. That's cool. I remember when Dylan Scott first came out, I was still working at the radio station and we were just about to launch Heartland Waterfowl. Really? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he was telling me about how he's really big into hunting and, and I think, I don't even know, we might've exchanged numbers and I never did ever follow up up with that. And now he's a big deal and I'm still trying to figure out what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) I take that back. No, we're, we're very blessed to be filming season 10 of Heartland Waterfowl already. But, um, so basically then through social media marketing and, and through influence, influencers, if you will, through the country music scene, um, that is what has allowed you to scale apex to where it is today. That is correct. Or do you have a pretty large ad budget for social media? We actually, we don't have, we dabble with it a little, I dabble with it a little bit. You know, I think we spend, uh, right around five to seven grand a month. Um, but really that's a pretty good chunk. It's a pretty good I mean, chunk. I mean, for, yeah. I see what you're saying based on where you're at. It yeah. wasn't always five or seven grand. A month. No, 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 no. We scaled it up. I mean, we did really, really well organically. Um, so the the sticks was really that back when off. it was a lot easier to get in front of people before the whole algorithm yeah. came in and started changing everything. Yeah, I mean, it's gotten substantially harder. Like yeah. even nowadays, like the the influencers that we're using, they would send over you know how many conversions we'd get from their links, and it's down shoot eighty to ninety percent of what it was even a year and a half ago. Yeah. So it makes it tough. So do you have influencers outside of the country music scene? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're all What are you looking for when you see that? Just people who are into fitness? Yeah, I mean, you know, people that are into fitness, um, you know, there's... We actually really target micro-influencers. So there's people that have five to 10,000 followers, but they're very, very loyal followers. So these people that have a million followers, a lot of times, uh, for instance, if it's you know, a really pretty girl and she puts out very flattering photos on social media. She's not going to convert. I don't care if she has 2 million followers. You know, no person is going to say, I want to buy a meat stick from her because she posted about it. They're following her because they like looking at her. Yeah. You know, and so I would rather target this person that has five to 10,000 followers, but they provide value to their follower. Sure. Whether it be through fitness programs or, you know, diet programs, they're actually given information that's pertinent to the follower and they actually, you know, are going to listen to them. What does a typical influencer relationship partnership look like? So we start everything off on a 90 day contract. Uh, 
because we don't know how well they're going to convert. And so that helps us establish a baseline of, uh, you know, what we're willing to pay them um, and what we think they could produce for us revenue-wise. And so I don't like to do that. I think it, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, so you're trying to get money out of them before you pay them. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to establish a fair offer for them because I could very uh, drastically undervalue them and underpay them. And or a lot overpay of time, them. Or, the over, yeah, yeah. or overpay them. But you don't know that until you establish that baseline. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically we started off with a 90-day, try and see how things go, and then decide where to go from there. How many influencers do you have with the brand? Overall, we've got 35. Yeah, 35 influencers that work with us. And is it is it gotten to the point where people are reaching out to you because they want to be an influencer? Or are you constantly on the lookout for those? Or both? I guess it could be both. Yeah, it's both. You know, we have a lot of people that reach out to us, but most of the high-profile influencers we're still reaching out to. Uh, I'm hoping that that will change as we, you know, grow and expand and we're really starting to launch, uh, with these 22 flavors that I've got in my back pocket that are ready to go. Once we get packaging in, we're going to be launching a new flavor every other week. And so Mm. that's when we're really going to start gaining that traction of, you know, the getting the attention on social media. You have to do those new launches. Like with these businesses, you have to come out with something new and put it in front of people. Otherwise it stales out real quick. Do you have good retention with your influencers? We have not lost a single one yet. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. What kind of content are you looking for from them? Uh, so, because really- the, because obviously, from when you started to where it is today, social media has changed. Everything is kind of going towards videos and reels now. So, do you just kind of change with the times? Yeah, I mean, we're really looking at video content. Uh, and really, the the worst thing an influencer can do, and any person on social media can do, is like take a selfie with the product that they have and say, here's my code, buy this. Yeah, that like that sucks. does nothing. You're it not going nothing. to get a single conversion. You have to show how you're utilizing it day to day. So if you're cooking eggs, cut up a meat stick and throw them on top and say, this is a perfect topping to your scrambled eggs. Mm. You know, show how you're actually using the product in everyday life. Authentic content. Yes. It's, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I will never, ever, ever mm. want an influencer to just take a photo and say, hey, here's my link. I mean, I don't know how many, and you know what, here's the funny thing about that comment is, is that that's kind of been the new wave or uh, as far as marketing is concerned. And it's been that way, I would think for the last five years, at least when we first started doing the TV show, there was a lot of hard sell marketing Mm -hmm. and TV shows would stop down for their third segment. And they'd be like, all right, today I'm going to tell you about the xyz shotgun and why this is the best shotgun that has ever been made and then the whole segment is all talking about the nuts and bolts of a shotgun which nobody really gives a shit about really like nobody really cares about this piston and this thing and you know maybe they may care if it's inertia versus gas driven but like this is it aesthetically pleasing does it shoot straight does you know like there's a uh, and, and what we as a heartland brand because hp is the same way is we've always taken a soft sell approach um, and that is more respected and more well-received with our audience. And there's a lot of sponsors, a lot of people who are in the industry like yourself that see the value in that today, but you would be surprised how many times I'll come across a business that will want to partner with us and they want us to stop down and do a product segment and talk about this. And, and I'm like, that's just not what we do. And if that's what you want, then we're not a right fit for you. Yep. 
Absolutely. Like I don't have any minimum amount of posts for my influencers. I hate it whenever, uh, you know, these brands are out there and they're saying like, I want five story posts and two, uh, main feed posts per week or whatever, whatever the the metric is, Mm -hmm. because the minute you put a minimum on the post amount is the minute you lose the organic feeling of the content. Mm -hmm. Like there's just no doubt about it. I felt that too with what we have to deliver for our sponsors when they're like, all right, in this year's agreement, you know, you're going to have to do two posts a month and, you know, uh, and X amount of videos and this, that, and another. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's my job, right? Mm -hmm. We're content creators. That's what we're supposed to do. But when you start putting a number to it, it's almost like this is something I have to do mm-hmm. versus something that I really just want to do because you have the trust in me that I'm going to represent you. And I felt like if there, and then we do have partners who are like that. We're like, look, you know, you do your thing. I've watched your page. I watched your Instagram. I know that you guys are going to take care of me. Just, you know, do, do what you do. Okay. That's great. I can get on board with that. And I actually will probably perform more than what the minimum requirement would have been in that. It it makes no sense. It's it's just, it is psychology. psychology. It is. It is. Um, but from a 30,000 foot view, it doesn't make any sense. You know, (laughs) like if I'm the, but I understand why people like businesses will want to. And, and if you're old school business, then it's hard for you to get away from having some sort of agreement of accountability that if I'm going to pay you to do X, Y, and Z, you're going to do what you say you're going to do. But it's really cool that you are putting yourself in a position that you're going out on good faith that if you take this approach, which is kind of a Gary, do you ever listen or follow Gary Vaynerchuk? Oh yeah, absolutely. Love him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love him. He's kind of got that same approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that they will actually perform better for you. 100%. Then, yeah, that's really neat. All right, so Apex, that's another business. So you got the the farm, you've got the rental properties, and now you come out with the meat sticks. Oh, I know what I was going to ask. How many freaking different flavors can you come out with with a meat stick? So you'd be surprised. Apparently. Because uh, I honestly thought I was going to hit a ceiling pretty quick at like 10 or 15 flavors. But yeah. I think I'm going to be able to do 40, 40, maybe 50. What is a flavor that I would not think of? Dill pickle. Spicy dill pickle. Okay. I mean, I, I, I can get on with that. Yeah. I like that. But like, so some, then, what's the most random thing that you, you've done that you just were like, when, when the idea was presented, you thought, what? Okay. So I did, uh, we were trying to formulate these. They're not going to hit the market after the flavor. Uh, liver and onion stick. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, the fitness industry right now, everyone's like into this liver side because I don't, have you seen Liver King on social media? I have not. He blew up on social media. Like the biggest thing on fitness, uh, TikTok, fitness, Instagram right now. Okay. He's eating raw liver, just like out there eating raw oh. liver all the time. So we wanted to get behind it. So we tried. Are to- you, a, are, do you do that? Do you like that? I tried it. I couldn't do it. No, I, I couldn't. It's get great catfish it. bait, but <laughs> it's the texture just, I, I yeah. couldn't do it. So yeah, we tried making liver and onion sticks and, uh, no matter what we tried, I could not mask the taste of the liver. So those will never hit the market, unfortunately. Okay. Is there fruity flavors or are these oh, more yeah. like the mesquite or the hickory? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. we've got um, cranberry bacon. We've got jalapeno cranberry. So it's a mix of, of sweet and a little bit spice. of spice. And it's good, good flavoring. So okay. yeah, it's very solid. And Spicy the, pineapple, too. And it's so. just protein, right? It's just removing the sugars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only sugars that are going to come in these meat sticks are from the fruits. 
So like, okay. yeah, you know, cause the fruits do come with sugar. There's no mm-hmm. way to get around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ones that have fruit in them are going to be a little higher, uh, in sugar, but like the original sticks or anything that is not contained fruit is literally zero to one gram of sugar. Wow. Yep. That's incredible. And that's been four years running now. So 2020 was first year that we launched November okay. 2020. Well, you, I guess you said started you started the idea in 18. Yes, yeah, yeah, correct. yeah. All right. So you correct. launched to market in 2020. Oh, you picked a terrible, or was it a terrible time to launch? It's a pretty rough time, actually. Yeah. yeah How did that work time. out with the COVID? Uh, yeah. So November, it would have been late November 2020, we launched. And I was like so excited. So I'd spent months, like the entire year gearing up for this launch. I'd built the website out. And then we had the launch going at like 9 a.m., and I had worked with this web developer. So I'm sitting there on the back end of the website, like just sitting there. We're ready for 9 a.m. to hit. And I was like, there's going to be so many orders hit. And from like 9 to noon, I think I had five orders. And I had stocked up on a bunch of inventory. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, mm-hmm. What are you going to do? What happened? Yeah. And yeah. so I'm freaking out. You know, was the, the, Did you have a big runway of pre-market or marketing before the launch? Not a whole lot. I was still learning. So I didn't have a whole lot of social media ads going. You know, I had a lot of influencers that were, um, you know, I'd sent out a bunch of product to for them to try and they had all posted about it. But the day of the launch, there wasn't a whole lot going on. And so, um, you know, that, that first day was a rude awakening for me and it really had me going back to the drawing board and thinking, okay, what do I need to be doing? Uh, you know, I hadn't learned anything about a sales funnel. I didn't know what funnels were. I didn't know how to connect my social media ads to my sales funnel to gear people to work into this funnel and the sales process to where they're really willing to swipe that card and buy your product. Like it, I'd never done any of that. And so it was more of a, oh shit, what am I going to do? I'm sitting on all this inventory. I have all my money put into this and I've got to figure out a way to sell this. And so went back to the drawing board. I was staying up all night long trying to learn how to uh, get people to learn about the product and want to buy the product. I knew it was better than anything else on the market. So I was like, I just got to get it into people's hands. Yeah. What, what, so what was the problem? It was just all about ads. So ads and sales funnels. Um, so basically being able to create these funnels to where I can get people to uh, see the brand, see the benefits to the brand, and then see the people that are trying the product, talking about the product, loving the product. Yeah. It's all coming from influencers that this audience trusts. So how did you build your funnel? Uh, so click Because funnels. there's a lot of, okay, click funnels. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And was there any, was that as simple as just buying a subscription to that and yeah you just buy a subscription to click funnels uh but it's not as simple as just like, that's my point yeah i, I understand what click funnels is i yeah. guess you have to understand sometimes when i'm asking these questions i'm asking it for those who are listening because yep. they don't understand yeah, exactly so how click this funnels is a software program where you can create these sales funnels so like literally if someone were to click on a social media ad, it takes them into the sales flow where you try and funnel them into the eventual process of swiping their card and buying a product. So whether it starts off with a video where I'm talking about the meat stick and how great it is or how much better it is than the competitor's meat sticks, and then it goes into an upsell where we offer a meat stick package for, you know, 20% off if they buy it this first time around. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we even send them free meat sticks, but all they do is pay shipping and handling. It mm-hmm. just gets the meat stick in their hands, and then they want to come back and buy it again. Okay. So that's what all this this click funnels and learning these sales funnels were all about. And really got a crash course on that because for two months, that's all I focused on. Yeah, because it's not like there's just one formula to a click funnel. 
No, know, and they don't and, work the first time. Like, there's a lot of, you know, uh, I think Russell Bronson, who created ClickFunnels, he calls them uh, funnel audibles. Yeah, because you <laughs> yes. go out there and they flop, and you're like, yeah. oh, shit, something yeah. about this funnel isn't working. So how many times did you initiate a ClickFunnel or a funnel, and you had to go back and and uh, manipulate it or twist it and turn it to get it to where it was really? And, and so how, and then after that, how long did it take upon getting the ClickFunnels subscription did you see the return on your investment? Uh, so seeing the return on the actual um, investment on the software was month one. Like, you know, the first funnel made some money. But, okay. you know, every single funnel I would fine tune. So like, um, you know, basically if you think of a funnel, you think of like five different steps. Well, step one converted really well, but step two sucked. So then I'd change something about the page on step two, and then it would convert a little better. And so I'd keep working on converting it better and better until I got it to where I thought it was pretty well finalized. So it's it's just nonstop. Like, I'm telling you, there is nothing in life, especially in entrepreneurship, that comes easy. I have yet to see it. I don't have, like, that lucky horseshoe in my back pocket where from day one things just like, I'm like, holy crap, how are we selling all this product? No, that does not happen. Like, it is like a freaking grind. I'm stressed to the max and trying to figure out how do I can stay afloat. How do you get the funding? Did you get, were you, was this something that you, you know, because you had already built uh, some capital through other businesses or maybe you talked to your dad, did you go to the bank? How does this happen? Especially now that you got your own manufacturing facility at your farm. Yep. So when I was in, I got my undergrad in entrepreneurship. So basically my entire undergrad and MBA was built around business plans and pitching to banks. So I became very, very good at pitching Mm. to whether it be investors or banks and showing them what my business is about and showing them the entire business plan from A to Z. So actually I won uh, a business pitch competition for a, it was called Bowfit. So it was a, a archery range and a CrossFit gym mixed together. And it was like a membership based model. My MBA, that was my thesis project was coming up with a business. That's really cool. Yeah. So I ended up, why didn't you start that business? Honestly, yeah, that's just too much. Maybe that's coming up in like 2030. That's right. But yeah, I won, uh, seven grand there at my thesis project because I, uh, we presented it to a bunch of investors and business owners. That's really cool. Yep. That's re- so that was that experience from college then that yep. has allowed so you. So then to- I'd put together these business plans that I, then I would take to uh, banks and I'd either get a small business loan or I would try and find government funding. So like for my meat facility, that my manufacturing facility right now, I'm, I'm very good at exploring government grants. Where can I get the cheapest amount of money, uh, you know, where I'm not paying crazy interest rates, especially in today's marketplace. And you find these government grants where they're literally, uh, you know, it's a bunch of red tape you have to jump through, but, you know, I can get $200,000 that I don't have to pay back if I upgrade my equipment in my meat facility. So I just try and find any of these government programs that you can. And there's a lot of them out there, especially for entrepreneurs and small business owners. There's a lot more than people think. You just have to really dig into your research. Hmm. Wow. I bet I could learn a thing or two with what I'm trying to do. Um, Okay. So I want to take another break here in just a second and get into Joe millionaire, but what, um, what is, is what you obviously was the car washes, Right after Apex then? Yeah, car washes hit. Uh, what, before you get into that then, tell me what you got all of this. I mean, you're a busy guy. You got all of these things going on. You're building a manufacturing facility at the farm with these Apex meat sticks. Hey, I, I'm just, I got too much time on my hands, I guess. I just need something else. Why don't we start a car wash? Because I just need something else to fill my day. 
Well, if you look at all the businesses that I had done up until that point, they were all extremely labor intensive. Yes. Farming was completely dependent on Mother Nature. You could go out and do everything 100% correct, and it could all be wiped out with a flood or a drought. Yep. So I or a hailstorm. Yeah, yeah, or a hailstorm. So I wanted to find a business that had low labor because I could see labor was becoming a challenge whenever we started getting into 2019, 2020. So low labor, uh, reoccurring revenue model. I'm not chasing down money through, you know, accounts perceivable. So I'm not calling on people to pay me. And then also was repeatable and scalable. So I was trying to find something that we could basically make cookie cutter. We take one copy of it and we print it all over the place. So you look at a car wash, yeah. you have membership model every single month, recurring revenue. Yep. Uh, you're not really dependent on mother nature to an extent, but anywhere in the Midwest, you have the right weather for car washing. Yeah. Uh, and then you take that same building that same footprint and you just slap it all over lots wherever there's a good lot location yeah and so to me that car wash was the best business model that i could find out of anything that i've explored thus far so when you did that did you have to did you design it for yourself or did you go and see other um i don't know how to ask this question because i'm not familiar with the industry but it's i guess it would be much like if i i've always had this and i told you this on the phone i think the first time we talked that i've always had this passion for wanting to start a self storage facility mm-hmm. i just it's the same concept from the standpoint mailbox money i yep. guess is where we're going with that um but there's these places that you can go then that have the infrastructure to build this right like there's mm-hmm. somebody who built who manufactures the buildings for the self storage did you have to go vet and, and interview all these different people who provide you the technology for the car wash? Yeah, I spent two years just in R&D on the car wash. So I flew out to Chicago, Green Bay, San Francisco, Orlando, Florida, all to different manufacturers of car wash equipment, uh, car wash architects in Chicago and San Fran. Like I was just scheduling meetings all over the place to just try and learn as much as I possibly could uh, on the forefront side of that so I would hopefully limit the amount of mistakes I had whenever I was actually <laughs> building them. And for the most part, we did a pretty good job. Um, you know, uh, the building, uh, our first build out went really well. If there's anything I could take back, I would have made the entry door and exit doors a little wider. They're 10 feet so they can handle anything, but I'd rather have them 14 to 16 feet. But I mean, very, very small changes that we have to make. So overall, I was pretty happy. When you get, you say we, who's involved in this business? So we've got, well, now we've got about 45 employees, uh, between all of our locations. But as far as owners. So owners, my dad, uh, we've got a COO named Galena and then myself. Um, the COO is incredible. Galena does a ridiculous amount of work really creating the systems. She comes over from Pacific Dental, who was opening a new location every other day when she was there. So wow. when you talk about scaling, like whenever we thought, okay, we want to build 100 car washes over the next five to seven years mm-hmm. and started looking at what we needed. We needed someone that came from that corporate background of crazy scale and knew how to create the systems to where you can scale without flopping. And so Galena fit that bill to... How'd you come across her? Uh... Actually, so just through our different business networks here in Kansas City, uh, one of our friends had told us about um, this woman that was winning all, like sweeping every single management and operator award for Pacific Dental. And we knew that we were getting ready to start building out these car washes. And we knew that, you know, my dad and I are very uh, visionary minded. So, but we're also, um, 
we get bored very quickly. So we're like here and then we're here and then we're here and then we're here. Yep. Obviously you can tell from the stories that I've just been telling you. Well, I'm the one asking the question. So I yeah. guess I'm just as guilty. So we <laughs> needed someone that was like more organized and OCD and focused on uh, the implementation side. And yeah. so we knew we were missing that fit. And so Galena really has come in and taken that role on great. Good, good. And so how many car washes do you have to date? Yeah. So right now we've got six of them up and operating, uh-huh. uh, but we have another eight that are under construction. All right. Is one of them off 23rd street in independence? It is. Yep. I drove by that today. Yep. Drove by that today. It looks great. Yeah. Okay. So another question, and I don't know if I should mention this because I don't want it to cause controversy, but the, that arena has really stepped up its game. Meaning that space, the, the mm-hmm. car wash space. Yep. You got the go car washes of the yeah. world. They've yeah. really came in and they bought up all the, um, um, Belfontes. Belfontes. Thank yep. you. You got Travis Kelsey who yep. out there is doing Club. his thing. Yep. So, um, what is it about what you guys are doing that makes you feel like that you're in a competitive that you can compete with what everybody else is doing? Like, or is there any difference? Yeah, there's a lot of difference as far as the equipment goes, which, you know, it sucks because most customers don't even notice the equipment that goes into a car wash. We're putting in a much higher end equipment package. But the biggest key difference is that we have a conveyor belt. So basically we can take from a, Porsche all the way up to a dually truck, mm. whereas most car washes are what they call a chain and drag system. So you have a rub rail yep. going in. Yep. It's scary as all get out. In my truck, I have an F-250 stock tires and rims. I can't even take it through a rub rail. I know. You saw yep. my truck probably yep. in the driveway. There's yep. no way I can get through yep. a, a car wash anymore without doing it myself. Correct. So you could take that easily through ours. So All that's right. the benefit is we can take virtually any vehicle. It's easy. You're not getting yelled at by a, a high school kid working in the tunnel telling you, go left, go right, like yeah. getting mad yeah. at you. It's self-loaded with a big uh, flat screen that goes from uh, green to red whenever you get onto the conveyor belt. And then we also have a drive through coffee shop. Yeah, so, that was yeah. the other cool little concept to that. Yep. Yep. So, so do you don't have anybody that's working in the bay that's kind of spraying the bugs off or doing any kind no, of degreasing? So we have uh, bug, prep, bug prep stations on the front end of the tunnel where it's all mechanically driven. Because oh, wow. my idea behind everything in the car wash is consistency and getting the exact same wash every single time. Yep. If you have kids working at the front, given what's called the bug prep, yep. first time you go through there, you have a kid that really takes care of you, spends two minutes on your car, you're happy. The next time you go through there, if the car wash line's backed up or you have a kid that really doesn't care about the wash and they just kind of wave the wand on you and send you through, no matter mm-hmm. what happens the rest of that wash, you're upset. Yeah. So. Um, when are you going to get one here close to RP Enterprises? Uh, actually. Or is there one that uh, I don't know about? There's one that you don't know about. Oh, so, really? Where's that at? Yeah, so right off 291. Um, 291 and where? Uh, so right by the Quick Trip, it's actually uh, the old wash Oh, house. that direction. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I'd never go that way. Oh. So that's okay. why I didn't know. Well, And that was built from scratch? That one, well, we are still uh, going through city permitting, actually. Oh, so, oh, I thought I, I'm sorry. I yeah. thought you said, I thought you were telling me that you have one. That oh, no, 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 everything. no, 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 no. Okay. So. Cause you're making me feel like a real asshole. That no, like, no, 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 no. Didn't you know that I had a McBee <laughs> right down the street? And I was like, well, I guess I don't no, really go that way got, anyway. We've got some coming here pretty soon. All right. Fantastic. Um, all right. So the car wash is the latest venture then. That is the latest venture. Is that's there, the was one. There, no, that's, that's it. That's our, we're putting our, our heart and soul into the car washes because of the, uh, you know, what could potentially come of them. So, mm-hmm. and so is there anything else on the horizon that you can talk about? I, I know that there's things on the horizon you can't talk about. Yes. Uh, you know, 2023 is going to be a very fun and exciting year. Uh, hopefully we're, we're going through some things that should be really, really neat. And, um, 
be similar to Joe Millionaire. Uh, I can say that much, um, but won't be dating, I guess. <laughs> or maybe we will. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? It could be. All right, speaking of Joe Millionaire, that's where we're going to uh, transition next and then wrap up the show. And so all of you serious, serial reality TV watchers that have been waiting and waiting and waiting for us to get to the nitty-gritty of what happened with Joe Millionaire, stand by. It's coming up next on Episode 25 of the Papa Ron Podcast. The Papa Ron Podcast is brought to you by Dumar Solutions. Dumar Solutions, offering affordable chemical and PPE solutions for any industry. Automotive, industrial, manufacturing, concrete, and asphalt construction. Also offering kitchen cleaners, corrosion control, and specialty coatings. Detergents, cleaners, and degreasers, laundry care, floor care, odor control, personal hygiene, and much more. Do more with Dumar. Inquire with any of your needs at DumarSolutions.com. That's D-O-M-A-R-E solutions.com. Now back to the Paparon podcast. Here's Ronnie Phillips. Want to be sure to thank all of our great sponsors here on the Paparon podcast. All businesses of which that I own. <laughs> hey, if you want to get more information about the Papa Ron Podcast and those that are uh, those sponsors that you hear here on the show, then I would encourage you to go to paparonradio.com. There is a, there on that website, you're going to see that this is more than just a podcast and there's other services that are provided um, through voiceover and copywriting and uh, radio station voice tracking. In fact, I was just talking to earlier about being on a uh, 100.7 KMZU up there in Carrollton, Missouri, doing the night show. And so uh, check it out. I'd love for you to check it out if you get a chance. PapaRonRadio.com. All right, Joe Millionaire, did that change your life? Um, you know, not to the extent that I thought it would, honestly. Uh, going into it, what Fox had planned and what they put into the marketing side of it, um, Kurt, the other guy, and I were thinking we were going to be pretty big deals going into 2022. I mean, they put mm-hmm. a lot of money into the marketing. Heck, they had our faces in Times Square. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was pretty wild. There was billboards all across the country. They dumped a lot of money into the marketing. And the show did decent. Uh, Ratings-wise, I think it was averaging 1.2 to 1.3 million viewers. Um, and so they're still thinking about making another season uh, going into 2023. But it did not change my life substantially. It was fun, though. I enjoyed yeah. it. How did it all come about? Uh, so they reached out to me on Instagram, a casting company that was hired by Fox. Reached randomly. Out to me, randomly. Out of nowhere. I thought it was a joke. Didn't respond. And then they sent me another message and they said, why don't we just schedule one Zoom call? So I was like, yeah, you know, what do you what's it? What, yeah, what's it hurt? Yeah, and yeah. so scheduled the Zoom call and the minute they Zoom called me, they were in like a legitimate office and there was like people that looked legitimately uh, like they were from LA. And so I was like, Maybe there's something to this. And uh, that would have been January of 2021. And I didn't hear back from them until April. And so I just was like, whatever, you know, nothing's coming to that. Well, they reached back out to me in April, and they started asking for a bunch of financial information because they told me at the time that the show was called Love for Real, and it was about a bunch of people that were focusing on their careers and were ready to find love. I was like, 
Well, I'm not really ready to find love, but I've got this brand called Apex that's direct to consumer. If I could grow my audience, I could sell more Apex. So that was my idea of thinking going yeah. into it. I, yeah. You know, I didn't really think I was going to find love on a dating show, but <laughs> thought I could have some fun and uh, hopefully grow Make my some audience. Money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I sent over a bunch of financial inf- inf- information. What and, kind of information are they out? Tax returns? Oh, like, what are they asking for? I had to send over tax returns, uh, personal financial statement, um, balance sheets, uh, ownership documents of all the companies. I'm not kidding. I felt like I was being audited by the government. That's what I'm going with this is, did they really need that information? Uh, I don't know why they requested that much. I was so confused. I honestly, I told my dad a little bit about it. We were laughing about it. And it got to a point where I was sending five or six emails back with their credit analyst. And I was like, dude, fly out here and look at my assets if you're like doubting anything. But otherwise, like I'm not sending any more information to you. I feel like yes. I just sold you my soul. Yeah. And yeah. so I was done. Like I told him, I was like, I'm not sending you anything else. Like I, I don't want this. Like these are internal documents. I don't even know you. Yeah. And so uh, after that email, didn't hear anything back. That was early June. And then July comes. And then all of a sudden, like the Fox executives want to set up a Zoom. And I'm like, oh, this is going somewhere then. And so they set up a Zoom. They said, hey, we think you're the guy. We want you to fly out here to L.A. Uh, it's down to, like, the last five guys. And so I fly out to L.A. This would have been, like, July 25th. And didn't hear anything from them until late August, like August 20th. And I get a call. There's, like, eight different people I'm communicating with. And I get a call from the lead person. And he's like, hey, we think you're the guy. And if you are the guy and the show goes through, we're going to be out to your house in three days to film. <laughs> And I'm like, three days? Like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you need to be ready to be gone for six weeks. But we don't know if it's for sure yet. And I'm like, so you don't know if it's for sure, but if it is for sure, it's going to start shooting in three days. Oh, my. And so I was like, and I hadn't told anyone about it because I didn't want to be made fun of, like, if I'm like, <laughs> hey, I'm on this reality show, and then it doesn't happen. Right. And so I hadn't told anyone about it besides, sure. like, my dad and a couple of my brothers. I'm like, hey, I think they're going to be here in three days, so we better yeah. clean up the farm, like, make it look pretty nice for them. But I'm not entirely sure, so don't make fun of me. Yeah. And, uh, like, a day but they before. Made fun, they made fun of you anyway. Oh, for sure. Yeah, 100%. 100%. <laughs> and then a day before I got the call, they're like, hey, we'll be there at, you know, 3 p.m. tomorrow we'll start shooting around 6 p.m. It's like okay this is surreal like yeah you're telling me like I was like I really hope this isn't a joke and like a couple people don't fly out here with like little handy cams and anything like that right. I was that was my other big concern they don't tell you anything about what's going on with these shows I didn't know it was Joe Millionaire they told me it was a show called Love for Real they didn't tell me any other information they didn't tell me where we were was going that on was that that's on purpose, 100% intentional. They don't want you telling more information or giving out more information uh, to, you know, if I was to call anyone with a, a network to TMZ or whatever it may be. Sure. They, they don't want any of that information getting out, so they keep it all from you. And they keep you in the dark the entire time. So, you know, we're shooting the show. We did three days at the farm, and then we flew, or I rode down with them in a van to uh, Kansas City Airport. Had no idea where I was going still. And then we ended up flying to Atlanta, and then we went to a mansion just outside of Atlanta in Gainesville. Okay, so let's back up here. So these strangers, how many people are in this crew? So the crew that, so yeah, I was scared it was going to be like two or three guys. There ended up being like 20 people that flew out to This is what I was afraid of. So you got 20 people that are flying into your farm or Mm -hmm. flying out to Kansas City to be at your farm. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming they're not, they're, they're staying at some... A hotel. hotel. Where I mean, you're in Gallington, right? Yeah. So where are they staying? Cameron. So it's about 30 minute drive. Okay. Yep. I know where Cameron is right off Highway 36. Um, so 
they, <laughs> so then do they prep you at all for like, okay, we're going to send a crew out there. They're going to give you an itinerary or just kind of just follow their lead. Did they prep you with what you were going to be covering while they're there? And did you know that after those three days, you were going to be going with them to the airport and be flying out? So they didn't prep me over what we would be shooting. They told me nothing itinerary wise. I didn't know anything. I just had the entire farm clean and I knew that they didn't want me to appear wealthy in any way. That was the only thing they told me. So okay. I, which is fine. I don't wear anything like yeah. I dress pretty normal. Like You're a, a humble guy. Yeah. I get it. And so that was all I knew. I knew I was also going to be leaving after three days to go wherever they were taking me, but I didn't know where okay. that was. And that was it. Like, that's all I knew. And this happened three days before those three days that they told you this, right? Because like, they, yeah, it was so, just a few days before yeah, that they days, said we were coming. Yeah. They're like. We don't know if it's for sure or not, but if it is for sure, here's what we're going to be doing. And then the day before they got there is when they said, okay, we're coming. Okay. So what, uh, how much, you're involved in a lot of stuff, right? Uh -huh. I and mean, you got your dad and your brothers, I guess, who are still involved in the business, yes, right? Correct. So like, do, who's picking up your slack while you're gone? And what did that look like? So like, what did that conversation look like? In a normal reality show, especially a dating show, they take your phone the entire time. You're not allowed to have it. I had negotiated with them in July when I flew out there to L.A. I said, like, I'm running day-to-day -day companies. I have got to have my phone for, like, four to six hours a day. There's just no way around it. And they said, if you're selected as a guy, that's fine. We'll make that stipulation okay. So I knew I could keep things afloat. I knew for, like, there was no chance in hell that I was ever going to move a business forward trying to, you know, do it from a phone for four hours a day. But I figured I could keep things somewhat afloat. And I knew the farming operation going into harvest, uh, for the most part, it could be handled because I'm not in a tractor anymore every single day. Yeah. And so I knew that could be handled. And so um, what time of the year was this? The July? Labor, no, Labor Day is when they were at my farm. Labor Day. So they okay. started August 29th, and then I left for Atlanta September 2nd. All right. Yep. So your harvesting is, you know, your, well, no, I guess you still had quite a bit of harvesting to do going into October, right? Oh, yeah. 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 When I got back October 19th, we were, you know, we're only halfway through harvest then, so. Okay. So you were in just outside of Atlanta for how long? Six weeks? Yeah, six weeks. We had to go through. They also didn't tell me this was during COVID, and it was a union show, so it's very, very strict. We had to do a seven-day hotel room lockdown, uh, quarantine. I could not leave my hotel room for seven days straight. Like, they would, I'd have to text them what food I wanted. They'd leave it at the door of the hotel, and I'd open up the door, grab my food, and then I had to close it. I was stuck in a hotel for seven days straight, and I didn't know that either going into it. Where you had to have been like, what the I hell? I was so mad. I was so mad. <laughs> right. I, I would be I too. was calling all the producers. I was like, hey, I, this is not what I signed up for. Like, what yeah. is going on? Yeah. Okay. Um, what point do you find out? I was watching a YouTube clip tonight and, or earlier today, and you, uh, I think you said, or maybe Kurt said, that you didn't know that this was Joe Millionaire until you got there. Yeah. Yeah, we That's had true. no idea. Yeah. Okay, so what? How does that? How do they break that to you? I mean, you they get you all. You're in this mansion. They're, yep. I guess, they're telling you they got your 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 clothes sizes. So you didn't show up there with the tux. No, right? They said, "Here's your tux. Put it on." Yep. Right, and guess what? You're Joe Millionaire. Yeah. So during the hotel quarantine, they brought in a stylist, and he would push like this whole rack of clothing to the front of the hotel door. So I was trying on clothing the entire time. So then, after the seven days were up. 
uh, Kurt, the other guy, and I. And I had heard through the grapevine that there was another guy. Like, I, the producers would be whispering and be like, oh, yeah, that'd look good on the other guy. And I'm like, the other guy? Like, what are they talking about? They're screwing with you. Yeah, I was like, like, what are they doing? Are they trying to have me in, like, a competition? <laughs> like, I didn't understand it. So then... Day eight, we leave the hotel, and we go to this giant mansion, and I'm in this guest house, and I'm in a studio about like this, and it's like an interview setup. And we're sitting there like doing the interview, and I'm talking about how like my dating life is gone, and like I'm trying to trying to find love, and I'm mm-hmm. filling them with some, you know, you know, again, I wasn't there to find love, but I was like, right. I, just, I hope I find my future wife here, you know. <laughs> I'm just selling it are to they, them. Are they tell? okay, so you're hamming, up, hamming it up without them asking you to ham it up. Oh, no, they were wanting me. To, they were, like, saying, like, are you here to find your wife? Like, you know, what if you get engaged when you're here? I'm like, like oh, my God, I'm never. Yeah. But I was like, oh. You know. So you weren't really serious about no, this whole thing? No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And so then they're sitting there, and the guy that is interviewing me is sitting right off camera, and he sits there, and he's like, okay, we're about to tell you something. Are you ready for it? Uh, and I, honestly, like, there's so much weird stuff that happened. I had no idea where this was going. Like, I was like, I don't know what they're about to say. So then the main producer, Sally Ann Salsana, who created Jersey Shore, walks into the room. And, she's and you like, don't know that, right? You no, don't want, I don't know yeah. her. So like, they probably introduce you as the person who produced Jersey Shore, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. So she walks in, and she's like, Stephen, we just want to tell you, you're Joe Millionaire. And I was like, I, I could see the depth of the moment. Like, I knew it was a big moment, but I was like, Okay, cool. I don't know what Joe Millionaire is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah. had no idea what. You had heard, had you not ever heard no. of it before? No, like, never. Tw- what was it, 15, 20, 10 2003. Years? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. It was right when I first started working at Q104. Yep. Oh my gosh. Yep. 20 some years ago. Um, or 20 years ago, actually, almost 20 years ago. Is yep. that right? Yeah. Okay, um, so the, the difference, though, in this year or that show versus the original was there was one guy then, mm-hmm. and he wasn't a millionaire. Nope. And this time, there was two guys. One of you were the millionaire, and the other one wasn't. I'm obviously, Kurt wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. So um, is Kurt, you still friends with Kurt? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I'm is, hanging out with him it, next weekend. Is that right? Oh, oh yeah. that's really cool. So he seemed like a cool dude from yep. what little clips I, I was able to see. Um, and you knew nothing about this guy until you got to the mansion. And it's like Correct. all of a sudden, all right, guys, meet. Here you go. What What is that moment like? Yeah, it was weird walking into the room. Obviously, Kurt looks a lot different than me. You know, he's got, uh, uh, at the time, he had super long hair. It was up in a man bun. Super well-dressed. Um, you know, obviously looked very confident. I walked into this room, and, like, all these cameras were on us. It was just, it was such a surreal moment. And my first thought, like, what I found out there was another guy is, I really hope they aren't trying to pin me to be like this rich prick. That was my main concern. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want them to think that like I'm some cocky rich prick because I'm not. I'm blue collar as all get out. I just, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so uh, that was my main concern walking in there. And then Kurt and I hit it off right off the bat. You know, we filmed. We started filming at 10 p.m. is when I met Kurt. And for three hours, we were waiting on the women to show up to the mansion so we could meet the women. At 10 p.m., you said? Yeah, we film all night long. So the women didn't show up until after midnight? Yeah, they showed up at 1 in the morning, and we filmed from 1 in the morning until 7. Oh, my God. Everything that in had re- to be brutal. Everything in reality TV is hurry up, hurry up, and then wait. wait so yeah. you get dressed up. like They're like, come on, come on, come on. We're about to get this shot. And then you sit there and wait all the camera crews to get ready. And literally every single shot takes an hour and a half to set up. 
Unreal. Yep. Wow. So whenever Kurt and I were off camera, we were, you know, just talking it up, talking. He works construction. I was telling him about the farming operation. We do some construction, build some homes as well. Yeah. And so we really hit it off right then and there on the first night. Yeah. Where is he from? Charlotte, North. Yeah, Charlotte. North Carolina? Yep, North yep. Carolina. I so, think that was South Carolina or not. No, that's all right. <laughs> um, did, uh, we? I mean, we'll get into what happened with the girl that you picked in a moment. Is did he end up staying with the girl that he picked? So uh, he picked a girl named Amanda, the blonde, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, and she was from New York, and they ended up breaking up right around Thanksgiving. They had a falling out, like a couple of days ago. No, or, no, no, oh. <laughs> no, like two weeks after the show ended, they were oh, done. Okay, yeah, it right. didn't last very long. Gotcha. Um, that's the thing that I wanted to ask. Is I don't. I hope this doesn't sound offensive. And I don't think it does because you seem to have your head screwed on straight. Um, I don't understand why people are so fascinated with these reality dating shows because they never end up being together ever. One time, I think, which was uh, whatever that shit. What was that show? Um, what was the original dating show? Well, there's Joe Millionaire. Oh, it's killing me anyway. Probably before my time. It, well, I mean, it was one of the very first ones. Yeah. Um, what do you, it doesn't matter. <laughs> my point is, is that they never end up together. Never. And they, I mean, and there's been a variety of different TV uh, dating shows. Wasn't Kelsey on one? Yeah. Yeah. Catching yeah. Kelsey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, why are they? Why do people watch this crap? People get so caught up and think that you're actually falling in love on these shows. My time frame with each of these women as individuals may have been in totality 40 minutes. Like, wow. 40 minutes over six weeks was my only time alone with that woman. And all of it was on camera. So, of course, you're putting on a front. I don't yeah. care what anyone says. You cannot be 100% authentic when you're on camera, especially for the very first times. So, you know, you're trying to act like the best guy on planet Earth. You're not sure. being your true authentic self. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, you don't even know these people. So at the end, when you were, when you, uh, <laughs> when you were down to the two mm -hmm. and the, you had the brunette that was in front of Annie. you, which by the way, she was a smoke show. Yeah. Annie's uh, amazing. And, and, and she's walking away in shock as she says, and you look like you're about ready to break down and cry. That's all. That one was pretty tough because Annie and I, like, Annie's cool. I mean, I, I had a really, really strong connection with Annie and, and still to do, still do to this day. Like, she's such a good person. And so, like, my connections were surprisingly very real, even though they were short-lived. Um, and, and you and, only spent 40 minutes in the entire time of filming with that woman. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah, individually, like, with just her. Yeah. Uh, but it was enough to, like, really see who Annie was as a person. I was like... Actually, she's really, really cool, and yeah. she's from New York City. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so whenever she was walking away, I, which I don't do well in those conversations anyways, like, I struggle. Um, yeah. You know, that's always, I hate those, those you know, conversations. Because you feel like such a feel like douche. A, yeah, yeah, I hate it. And so, you know, watching her walk away, <laughs> that was pretty tough. Um, I think they definitely pulled some film of, like, they. I was standing up on that altar for, like, three and a half hours. And so there was times where I was like, holy smokes. And I think they pulled some of those clips <laughs> like where I was just tired from standing and they like showed it as she was walking away. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was a tough conversation to have because she is such a good person. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, the women that are in the show, are they in it for the same reason that, I mean, they can't be in it for the same reason. There's a competition. Like there's only two of you guys. There's however many, 30 of them. 
But yeah, there was were, 20 to start. 20? Okay. Yep. So, like, what are they really going on there to push a business, to push their identity? Like, what, what, do, what do they, what's in it for them? Everyone goes on TV for the same reason. It's to be build famous. Up, yeah, it's to build up their brand. Okay. You know, what some of these women did have their own companies or some of them were trying to become influencers. I mean, that's the entire goal is the opportunity to extend your your platform. I mean, mm-hmm. no one truly goes on reality TV to find love. But it's not the same for them as it is for you. No. Right? Like, if I was them, like they had to do the same seven day quarantine and they're one of 20. Yes. If I wasn't the lead, no way would I've ever done this ever. Right. Right. That's what I was trying to understand is like, were they were, did you ever get a sense by, especially now being the, the show is over and having had conversations with them, did you ever feel that any of them were there genuinely in hopes to find love? <laughs> <laughs> No, no. <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, the, you know, honestly, no. This it's, is why I don't understand why people watch reality and TV. Obsessed with it. Yes, my sister-in-law <laughs> watched the entire thing. I texted her the other day, by the way, and I've got to read, go through some of this. Where is this? Um, Jenny, who I love dearly, she's my wife's sister. Um, she is one of these fans who will watch the entire <laughs> thing through and through. So I was like, okay, look, Stephen McBee is going to come on the podcast. If you got some things that you think might be interesting, you know, shoot me over a text. And so she's like, so uh, the girl that he picked, she moved here. They bought a house in Lee Summit and then they broke up and then she moved home. But then they were uh, and then they were posting again back together. And then now I feel like they're broken up again. So maybe chat about that. What is going, there's a lot going on there, Steven. There's a lot there. Um, Truthfully, I'm a train wreck when it comes to anything. Really? Is that what it is? Yeah. I mean, what she said is pretty much the truth. We, she moved up here. Um, She's like a pharmaceutical sales or something. She was, um, I might have that wrong. I thought I had heard that. She's in Texas though, right? Yeah, she's in Texas. Now she's doing some things on the influencer side. Uh, beforehand, she worked at an architectural firm. Okay. Um, she's a project manager. And uh, so, yeah, she moved up here. We tried to make things work. We actually, tr- we had a pretty good connection. We still do to this day. So it, this wasn't all for nothing. Like, no, it actually that- wasn't. Like, it's, you know, I talked crap about it and I was like, oh, I never got on there and found love. But I actually ended up having two pretty solid connections with two different women and then ended up dating one for like, I like to say I made it a lot longer than anyone else on reality TV did. I, you know, I made it till you know, like seven months, eight months. And so what happened? Just, I, you did know, she just come to you one day? It was like, yeah, this isn't working. I'm just going to go back to Texas. I just, I'm a very, very tough person to live with because I'm all over the place all at once, like full steam ahead, full energy. I can't sit still for a second. Mm -hmm. And so we just had conflicting personalities and it just was not working out. So, you know, she didn't have very many, obviously she had no friends friends, Yeah, and she was sitting at that house and I'm out there working and going from one job to the next job to the next job. Mm -hmm. And she's sitting there by herself and, you know, wanting me to come back home. And I'm like, busy. (laughs) And and so the writing was just on the wall. Like we we both were like, you've got to get back to Dallas. Like that's the only way, you know, Mm -hmm. even if, you know, we were broke up, we were like, if we were ever going to make this work, 
you got to be back home by your family and friends and your support group and by people that care about you and you can spend time with because I'm not the guy that's going to be home at 5 p.m. every single day for the rest of the evening. That's just not me. Yeah. And so we broke up. She moved back down to Dallas. And was that hard? That was pretty tough. It was uh, because I do care about her. I mean, I did. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that how was, long ago was that? That was May. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds pretty recent. Yeah. I mean, so, relatively recent. Relatively. So, yeah. Broke up in May. She moved down to Dallas. It took her a little bit to find an apartment. And so she lived at the house there by herself. I lived up north. She moved back down in June. Um, and she's been there ever since. And then we started dating a little bit uh, late July. Kind of got back together again. And then kind of broke it off again. Um, yeah, so it's a uh, little bit of a train wreck uh, as per usual. Right, and so are you courting any of the other girls that you met on the show while you were there? Like, how does that, I mean, can you? Like, I guess you can, so, right? So, after we um, broke up the second time, I had Annie out to... That was the runner-up. That was girl. the runner-up, yeah. Yeah, she's um, a smoke show. Yeah, I'm sorry. You really screwed up there. Sorry. She's really cool. The blonde was cute. She was good-looking, but... Annie's pretty cool. Yeah. I am not going to lie. Yeah, she is a great person. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know. I so she flew out. out. Yep, hung out with her over uh, Halloween. Okay. Um, but, yeah, that kind of all hit the fan because People Magazine found out about it. I don't know how they got hold of photos of us hanging out in Gallatin, Missouri, but they did. Then they posted an article of it. Of course, that article went back to – Kala and all of her friends and family back in Texas. And then mm. that was like, you know, a few weeks after we had broken up for the second time. And so I was trying to lay low and then people magazine wrote an article about it and then it just kind of blew up. And yeah. she, it, in that, I, I would only assume then Kala, was that her mm-hmm. name? Mm-hmm. She reaches out, she's hurt, she's pissed. Probably you got an earful. I got an earful yeah. and you got an earful. Everyone in the U.S. got an earful. <laughs> so did, were you guys able to ever squash that, or did that pretty much seal the deal on that deal? Um, to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing. To be, to be continued. It, yeah, yes. yeah, it's an ongoing uh, ordeal. Um, I'm just kind and of. And Annie, like, she came out, and, like, you guys had a good time. She goes yeah, back yeah, to New York. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, we're just. I'm just and so those are the only two girls from the show then that you're still in communication with or considering. Uh, I still talk to Carolyn, um, who was on Kurt's side. That was one Kurt talked to Kurt's runner up. Okay. Uh, just completely just friends. Um, yeah. She's an awesome, awesome girl, like super awesome. And so we still talk. Shoot just about every single day. She nice. came out with Annie um, oh, to cool. the farm. Yep. So those oh, two nice. came out. Yep. All right. So let's get on here with what else Jenny has to ask. Uh, maybe ask him what made him want to sign up for the show from the beginning. I guess we already answered that. Um, I want to say he didn't know exactly what type of show it was going to be until it started airing. Ask him when the LS car wash is opening. I guess she's on top of that. Yep. When is it going to be opening? Yeah, so that one, uh, we're just about to break ground um, for the one that's down by Raintree Lake. So. Right off 150. Mm-hmm. Oh, perfect. Yep, That'll be board. the hot. That's the one I'm. That's the one I need right there. Yep. I'll just pay you for the year membership right now. <laughs> All right, perfect. Um, well, dude, I really appreciate you coming in. Is there anything I'm missing from the Joe Millionaire that you think would be fascinating or interesting to know from anybody who, like my sister-in-law, who is a hardcore reality dating TV show person? I would say, um, you know, the first night I get asked about this more often than not. Uh, I, there was a girl that I knew 
And like the casting companies are supposed to vet everyone, make sure no one follows each other, you know, that you don't know each other, especially in a show like this where the women aren't supposed to know which one of us is which. Mm -hmm. And a girl had lived in Nashville that I had met and somehow she ended up on the show. And so the very first night when we meet all these women, Mm -hmm. I walk out there to introduce myself and (laughs) under her breath, she goes, I know him. And there's audio people listening to every single person's (laughs) mic. And so they caught that. And this was it. 132 in the morning so they came and grabbed us all separated us all put us in separate rooms and for about an hour and a half i didn't know what in the hell was going on and they came in and they're like do you know this girl and i'm like yeah i do <laughs> so did you know her as being just somebody you met in nashville or somebody you had prior just hung out a little bit and so i nothing real serious i just hung out mm-hmm. um but because of the show and the concept of like one of us is wealthy one of us not the girls don't know they're like she knew yeah So they're like, you got to kick her off. And I'm like, but what do I tell her? Like, we just met. She has no idea what she did. And they're like, just say that you recognized her and you came here to find true love and you want to just start with a clean slate. And so that's what I told her. And she's like, and that was on the show. Yeah. She's bawling for 20 minutes, like crying her eyes out because she just went through a seven day quarantine and she's getting kicked off after being on the show for 10 minutes. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you got to leave. And she's like, but I don't understand. I, I don't know. Why are you kicking me off? And it was awful. Do you still talk to that girl? Actually, yeah, we hung out in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> Do you talk to all of them? All of them? I mean, no, it sounds I like, mean, like half of them. Really? Yeah. I mean, they're all really, really cool. People. Is there any of them that you absolutely like, oh boy, yeah, don't, we don't need to know each other. Did you have a bad experience? No, there was no bad experiences. There's definitely some that are very, very city, like L.A. city. And yeah, yeah I just, just don't, not don't talk to. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, and, and so um, you talked about, and I'm trying to be careful about how I say this. Uh, you talked about the next venture being something that was similar to Joe Millionaire. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question is, without getting into what that might be, is is that a product of having that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Got me to the right people, the right connections, and uh, you know, was able to broadcast who I am, who my family is, and and what we may offer as far as being an on camera personality. Yeah. That's really cool, man. I really appreciate you coming in here, man. I feel like I could keep you forever, but I know you're a busy guy. We're coming up on two hours. And, and if you've listened, I've, I've checked out your podcast, which we probably need to do that before we go. So let's touch on some of the plug, like you plug your podcast. The- yep. It's welcome to the farm. Yeah. Uh, so we're on YouTube. We're going to be on all platforms uh, here pretty quickly. McBee farms is our Instagram page. My personal Instagram page is Stephen McBee. Um, uh-huh. You can follow anything we do from my my personal Instagram. So. Right, right. And um, in any of the other business ventures, like the Apex, so how would they go? Yeah, so go to my personal Instagram, and you'll see the links to Apex, to McBee's Car Wash, to McBee Farms, everything You got the doing. link tree right yeah, there. Yeah, I've got mm-hmm. it all on mine. That's okay. the easiest spot. That's the hub. So, so just go follow Steven on his Instagram yep. page. And Selfishly, follow there. me first, then worry about the businesses. Cool. And you're tagged out? In, <laughs> yeah. And so... 
Yeah. And then yeah. And is that really the only thing hunting wise you really, that's your passion is whitetail? Yeah, it is. I used to go on more trips uh, back in the day, but I've been so busy. So yeah. I haven't been able to. Never gotten into the waterfowl thing, huh? Been a couple of times. Um, watched a lot of birds fly over my head. <laughs> <laughs> Spent three hours putting out the spread and never killed anything. Really? Where were you? Three hours you were hunting. You must have been throwing snow goose decoys. Yeah. Dude, yeah. don't do that. <laughs> I'm the guy on the team, on the Heartland Waterfowl team, who who gets made fun of because I uh, uh, am very emphatically against snow goose hunting. Yep. Yep. Because it's a high risk, high reward game. Oh man! You put in a lot of work, and they might do it. But when they do it, it's sick. And you got a tornado yep. of thousands of them coming in. It's pretty ridiculous, man. Hey, dude! I I tell you what. I, I again appreciate you being here. I respect you a lot, and I uh, I really appreciate your mindset. I appreciate your hard work, your dedication, um, and I think it's a testament to being. And this is going to maybe sound a little bit corny, but I think in the world that we live in, where there are so many individuals who think people that people like us or you in, in this case, um, I probably shouldn't have put myself in your category because I'm not, but people who ever have success, they feel like it's just given to them. And I think that there's a world or an entitlement society that we live in where people don't want to work for something unless it's just working, unless it just is given to them. I think that there's probably some honesty to say that, you know, you grew up in an environment where your dad had had some success. And Absolutely. so you were fortunate enough to, to grow up with money. But that isn't to say that your success came because your dad gave you the success. You worked your ass off to get it. Correct. And I appreciate Correct. that so much. And I appreciate the fact that even when you launched... Um, the, the apex thing and you had no idea what you were doing and you're calling up the small, well, what you thought was the small butcher up in Northern Missouri or Northeastern Missouri. And he's spending 45 minutes on the phone to help navigate you through the process. And had he not done that, you wouldn't be where you are today. Just all these little stories and all of it is a product because a product of you having a drive and a desire to accomplish something and no, won't no no is not in your vocabulary absolutely you'd be amazed at how many people are willing to extend a helping hand whenever you show the passion and the drive to want to do something and that's where i wanted to kind of end this episode with is is that if there is somebody listening to this who is living the corporate lifestyle and they um they feel like that they are stuck and they feel like this is just the way life is supposed to be for them it's it doesn't have to be it, uh, what do you tell, what do you tell that person? Like, like if you've got an idea, if you've got a drive, if you've got something, then like, don't settle. You live in a country that gives you the ability to live the American dream. And if you've got the, the tenacity and the, uh, just the will to want to, to try and accomplish it, like, here's the first thing. And you said it on your podcast, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. If you start something and you are going, I remember starting Heartland Waterfowl. Failed miserably Flopped. several times. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean the business failed. That doesn't mean that we had to hang it up and start all over from scratch. But I may, I mean, I, I fell down many, 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 many times. Don't let the fear of failure stop you from getting started. Absolutely. Yeah. Failure is really just a step in the right direction to learning what success is. Mm -hmm. You cannot have success without failure. It's literally a prerequisite. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's no way to find success. How could you reasonably expect to know something that you've never done before without a fail? Right. Just doesn't make sense.
Yeah. And that's good advice for me because I really want to start this self-storage thing, but my fear of failure is stopping me from doing it. So I will talk more about that off mm-hmm. the show, but I really appreciate you being on here, man. Thank you so much. We're going to wrap this up. Episode 25 of the Papa Ron podcast. I want to thank a few people for being a part of the show. Of course, I want to thank Rick Hunter and Rich Donovan for helping produce the imaging elements of this show. I also haven't done it in for a few weeks, but I want to thank Dakota Thurn and Quentin Verlinick for being a huge inspiration for me to do this podcast there with Marathon Media Management. Thanks again, Stephen McBee. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate really you appreciate being it. here. Episode 25 of the Papa Ron podcast. If you enjoyed this show, hit subscribe now and tell your friends on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, and other social platforms. To participate on the show, leave a message with your comments or questions by calling or texting 816-558-6389. That's 816-558-6389. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Papa Ron Podcast. Papa Ron Podcast. Oh.